Well, turn with me to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. If you're visiting today, welcome. We are so glad that you are here. If you've taken time away uh, from whatever you do on Sunday afternoon to be with us, we are thankful and we are honored to have you here on this Sunday afternoon. Christ Fellowship Bible Church began 11 years ago. We It really started with a couple of families that said, we're committed to the Word of God. We're committed to the biblical preaching of the Word of God. We don't have a flashy ministry. We're not a program-driven church. We are a Word-driven church. We're a a prayer-driven church. We're a a one-anothers-driven church. And so there's a lot of opportunities to serve around here. It just might not be on a dotted line and a big formal ministry, but there's a lot of people that we can disciple and show hospitality to and love and get to know and serve. And what a wonderful way that we can do that here at Christ Fellowship Bible Church. But we're thankful that, that you are here if you're visiting with us this afternoon. We're studying the book of James. James is all about faith in action. And today we're in for a doozy. Okay, we're in for a doozy. What does it mean to live a life What does it mean to live a life that really shows that you have genuine, true, saving faith? James is going to make it very clear in the five chapters of this little letter what true faith really is. It is a working faith. It is a serving faith. It is an obedient faith. Not a a good life to try to earn your way to heaven. That's not at all what James teaches. But it is an obedient life that really is the inevitable result that God has done that saving work in your heart. Well, we come to the very end of James chapter 1. Follow with me as I read our two verses, James 1, verse 26 and 27. This is the word of the Lord. If anyone thinks himself to be religious, And yet he does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart. This man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. It was a number of weeks ago, as I do usually on Tuesday afternoon, I do sermon preparation here at the church in the morning, and then I go across the river to Granite City to Hope Clinic for Women, which is the worst name for a place ever. It is an abortion clinic. And as I do each Tuesday, I'm there and I proclaim the gospel and we offer help and hope to women and Tell them that we care for them. We'll give them any resources they need. We'll come alongside of them. Just a couple of weeks ago, I was there at the abortion mill, and a woman gets out of the car, and the first thing she said to me was, God bless you. God bless you. I'm religious, she said. God bless you. I said, ma'am, do you know what they do to children in there? Do you know what they do to babies? You need to turn away from here. It seemed that that woman that was speaking to me was with her daughter, and she was bringing her daughter into Hope Clinic for an abortion. I said, ma'am, you need to turn away from this place. You need to repent of your sin, and you need to fly to Jesus Christ. You need to run to Jesus Christ. He is willing to save you. She got a little bit more hostile with me. 
She said, she's made up her mind. We're fine. We're religious. God bless you. And she turned away in a huff and she went and she paid her money and went into the murder mill. As I have reflected on that through the weeks, and that is not uncommon. That happens quite frequently. As I have reflected on that and reflected on my sermon text for today, that woman's religion in the sight of God was utterly worthless. Utterly worthless. Here's why. She talked like the world. She did not care for the weak and the vulnerable. She lived like the world by imbibing the God-rejecting worldly mindset that murdering her baby is somehow good and beneficial. Have you ever met somebody like that? Have you, you ever been in a situation like that where, where people say, I'm religious, I know about God, I'm good with God, I'm cool with God, but then you look at their life and how they talk and how they speak and it doesn't add up. It's not consistent. Maybe you know somebody who says, oh, I know God. I know God. I'm very religious. But then you listen to them and they repeatedly take God's name in vain. They are quick to respond in anger. They don't speak of Christ very much. They love to speak of the faults of other people and the errors of other more than they love to talk about Christ and his gospel. Have you ever met somebody like that? Or maybe you've met somebody where they say, I'm, I'm, I'm good, I, I know God, I'm religious. But they don't have love. They don't demonstrate love for one another, for other people, and even for the most vulnerable. For orphans and for widows and for the oppressed, even for children, born and unborn. People who say, I know God, I'm religious. But if you look at their life, their TV is full of worldly shows. They fill themselves full with media and headlines, and they're they're quite at home in the world. And the jersey that they wear with their name on the back identifies them as being on the team of worldliness. Jesus has a lot to say about this. In John chapter 8, verse 23, Jesus spoke to some of the most religiously outward, the externally religious people, the Pharisees. Jesus said to them, you are of this world, but I am not of this world. Later on, Jesus said in John chapter 18, verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world. My realm, my domain, my kingdom is not anything of this world. In Romans 12, verse 2, the Apostle Paul said, Do not be conformed to this world. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3, 19, that the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. In 1 Corinthians 7, 31, Paul said, The form of this world is passing away. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 2, speaking to the believers, that you used to walk in the form of the world or the course of the world as you were being led by your lusts and your cravings. According to 1 John 3.13, John says, don't be surprised, Christian, if the world hates you. You should be surprised if the world loves you. 
That's my commentary. John didn't say that, but don't be surprised if the world hates you, John said. And then earlier in 1 John 2.15, John said, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And on and on we could go through the word of God that being a friend of the world, living like the world, and being comfortable in the world, and just living life no different from the world might be a sure mark that one has not been changed by true conversion. True and undefiled religion in the sight of God is marked by obedience to God. We we live in this day. We live in this culture. It's all around America today. And American evangelicalism, people think I have an experience with God. I had a special encounter with God. I I had a mountaintop experience. I prayed a prayer. I received Jesus into my heart. I I had something happen to me. And, And it's almost like that sort of qualifies as a magic moment that makes someone a Christian. And they go back to that moment. But the New Testament doesn't say go back to a moment to prove your conversion. The New Testament says, look at the pattern of your life and see if that proves whether or not you are truly obedient to God. Because we want to have otherworldly kind of living. Otherworldly kind of living. We want to live all out for Christ. And, and that's what James is, is writing about. In James chapter 1, James has been teaching us the importance of living out this Christian faith. And he tells us in chapter 1 that we are to rejoice in trials. He tells us in chapter 1 that we are to resist temptation. He tells us about how we can obey God. How do we do this? Well, there has to be a heart change. And there has to be the true regeneration that God himself can bring. And then last week, in verses 19 to 25, James says we have to be hearers and doers of the word of God. Not only hearers only, but, but those who do and obey the word of God. And now in verses 26 and 27, James, as a great preacher, is going to conclude this section before he jumps into chapter 2. He's going to conclude this section with a very penetrating Can we just say it? A very convicting section. A very convicting section on true religion. Now, one thing that we need to remember, James is probably one of the earliest New Testament books to be written. Maybe Matthew was written a little bit earlier than this, but probably within a decade or so after Christ was crucified and then raised and ascended into heaven, James wrote this letter. And James is writing about true and undefiled religion. You see the word here in verse 26 and 27 three times. If you say you're religious, and then your religion is worthless, and then verse 27, pure and undefiled religion. It's a word that James uses that speaks of outward external piety. It's not, it's not a bad thing, but he wants to show here's what true religion is. Here's what true piety is. Everybody had a picture of piety, and guess who they were called? The Pharisees. And I want you to take your Bible real quick. Keep your finger in in James, but go back to Matthew chapter 23. Because in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus is in Jerusalem, and he is going to expose the outward hypocritical religion of these Pharisees. 
And these are the guys who just kind of, they do things for God. They have their outward ethics. And yet James says, pardon me, in Matthew 23, Jesus says in verse 2, the scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Verse 3, therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe, but don't do according to their deeds, for they say things, but they don't do them. I mean, Matthew 23 is so clear right here. Jesus says, here's your leaders, do what they tell you to do, but don't imitate their conduct. Why? Because they tell you to do things, but they don't do them themselves. Verse 4, they tie up heavy burdens and they lay them on men's shoulders. They themselves are unwilling to move them with even a finger. Verse 5, they do all their deeds just to be noticed by men. For they broaden their phylacteries and they lengthen their tassels, that is their garments and their Jewish symbols. Why? Verse 6, they love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats and the synagogues, and they love the respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. But verse 10, don't be called leaders, for there's only one who is your leader, that is Christ, but the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Pharisees. I mean, these were like the master religious people. I mean, they looked like they had it all together on the outside. And maybe you know people like that today. They, they, they attend church. They do a lot of good things for God. They have various rituals and habits and traditions. They say different prayers. They might even take notes. They might wear a cross. They might say, I don't party. They might have a Bible verse on their social media profile. They might have all these things saying, I'm a good Person, and I'm not like the world. James is writing at such an early time when people know religion. They know religion, and in their mind's eye, they're thinking external religiosity, Pharisees. Pharisees. James is writing to early Christians, and he says, No, no, no. Let me give you some key indicators of true and undefiled religion. It's not the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. It's not the hypocrisy of their Jewish leaders. What are the three indicators of true and undefiled religion? That's what we're going to look at today. And I want to give them to you. And this is our outline that we're going to look at together. Three indicators of true and undefiled religion. Number one, control your tongue. Number two, care for the weak. And number three, contend for purity. We must control your tongue, care for the weak, and contend for purity. So let's walk through each of these in turn. And may the Spirit of the living God, the God of grace and the God of love and the God who reproves, Show you and me our sin and show us also the grace of Christ as well. Number one, what is the first indicator of true and undefiled religion? It's found right here in verse 26. You must control your tongue. See it in 26. If anyone thinks himself to be religious, James says, and yet you don't bridle your tongue, but you deceive your own heart, that man's religion is Worthless. I mean, worthless. 
Now, this is really sobering here because your tongue is the most reliable indicator of true spirituality in your Christian life. Now, I'm not saying it's the only indicator, but it is the most reliable indicator. Your tongue, what comes out of your mouth, is the most reliable indicator of true spirituality. In other words, your words, your speech, simply reveals what's in your heart. Your words reveal what's in your heart. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus has taught on this, and he's teaching on the heart, and he's teaching on sins, and he's teaching on purity. And in Mark chapter 7, Jesus said, It is that which comes out of the man what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, fornication, theft, murder, adultery, deeds of coveting, wickedness, Deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these evil things proceed from within and they defile the man. Earlier in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus is speaking on the tongue. And listen to this, Matthew chapter 12, Jesus says in verse 34, the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of the good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of the evil treasure what is evil. But Jesus said, I tell you, every careless word that people speak, they shall give accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. That doesn't mean that you're saved by just some sort of magic phrase. It means that your mouth will validate your justification. Or your words will prove one's condemnation. James is going to have a lot more to say about the tongue in chapter 3. You know that. He's going to give all kinds of illustrations and pictures of how the tongue is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. And we'll get there in chapter 3 in a little bit. But picture it like this, if I could illustrate it. Your mouth, your words, your speech is like... The screen. It's like the PowerPoint screen. The problem, or if there's a, a typo, the problem is not the screen. Rather, all that is, is it's just making public what is on the inside of the hard drive of your heart. So what you say and how you speak and the words that come out of your mouth is like the PowerPoint screen just making public what's already on the inside in your heart. It just makes public what was private. And Pastor James in James 1.26 is writing to early Jewish Christians and he wants them to know if you think yourself to be religious, If you say that you're a follower of God, if you say that you're a follower of Christ, if you're a follower of Messiah, and yet, James said, if there's not a bridling of your tongue, then there's a deceiving of your own heart, and that religion is worthless. Worthless. Can't we all acknowledge together, we live in a cultural time when nothing will so set you apart as a child of God than the way that you talk. We we live in, in days, we live in our culture where lying is commonplace, where deceit and slander and gossip and all that is celebrated. It's everywhere. And yet godly speech 
can so distinguish, and it ought to distinguish, the child of God. Our tongue, such a small part of the body, and yet it can have such a powerful impact, can it? That's why the book of Proverbs says that the life and death is in the power of the tongue. Listen to some of the many manifestations of the tongue that we need to be on guard from. Let me just give you some and you can hear me out. The first might be gossip. Gossip, speaking the secrets of another. The Bible in the book of Proverbs makes it very clear that gossip is sin. We ought to mind our own business and not meddle in the affairs of others. Another way that sin can manifest itself in our words is the sin of flattery. The sin of flattery is to please someone with false praise and, and, and false adulation, to flatter them to their face. Another way that our words could lead us astray, third, might be the sin of slander, to damage a reputation to another, to damage the reputation of someone to another person. Slander is a, is a great sin. We're going to read about that in Psalm 7 this upcoming Wednesday and the danger that it can have. How about the sin of bragging? The sin of bragging. Exalting self and exalting my achievements. Look at what I've done. I'm so glad I did this. And, and our world is all a be who you can be. Believe in yourself and achieve and all the different self-help sort of Coach phrases that are out there to brag and exalt self and bring about your own achievements. Another manifestation of sins from our mouth might be lying. Lying to not give the truth, not give the whole truth, and even to deceive people into believing something that is untrue. Or another, singing. You say, what do you mean singing? Singing. Using our mouths to sing songs about God when our hearts are dishonoring to God. We don't want to sing about God and sing to God when we're holding and harboring sin in our heart. Another sin of the mouth might be the sin of exaggeration, to overstate or to understate a truth. Or even in our day and with the radio and Podcasts and so on, we need to be so careful with this. Singing songs that don't honor God. What fills your podcast and your phone and your YouTube? There are so many songs out there that are not godly and not Christ-like, and they dishonor God, and we don't want to sing those coming out of our mouths as well. Another way that this expression can come from our lips, another manifestation, is a lack of grace. A lack of grace. We can speak truth, but we can speak the truth without love. We can speak what is right, but we can do so in a sharp, in a biting, in a cutting, in an unloving kind of a way. And all all of these are manifestations of how our tongues can lead us astray if we don't bridle our tongue. And what's Pastor James saying? If you don't control your tongue, guess what he's saying? Your Christianity is worthless. It's worthless. Consider the man Diotrephes. In the book of 3 John, Diotrephes was, I think, one of the elders in the church in the city of Ephesus. He accused the apostle John and other leaders with wicked words, according to 3 John. 
Or the King Asa in the Old Testament. King Asa, when, when he was sinning against the Lord, God raised up a prophet to reprove the king. And when he was reproved of his sin, King Asa was enraged. And he lashed out at the prophet and put him in jail. Or Absalom. In 2 Samuel chapter 15, he won the hearts of the people of Israel by his smooth flattery. And he won their hearts away from David the king. Hear this, church family. When you speak, we are telling the truth about your heart. You're telling the truth about your heart. Ponder for a minute about, about your speech and how you communicate and how you talk. Is your speech habitually, not, not in an instant, but is it habitually marked by being critical or bitter? Is your speech marked by being judgmental? Is your speech marked by being gossiping and slandering or full of man-pleasing or demeaning others or reviling others? Or self-righteous? Maybe some clarifying questions. Men and women, how, how do you speak to your wife or husband? Parents, how do you speak to your children? Boys and girls, how do you speak to your parents? How do you speak to fellow church members? How do you speak to the coworkers and the boss and the manager and the team leader? How do you speak to strangers? How do you speak on social media? You see, our tongue, verse 26, is a good barometer. It is a test of our true religion. And Christian, as we read verse 26, we need to ask, where do I need to grow? Where can I bridle my tongue even more? Lord, help me to grow in this because we all can. We all can. But if, but if you're reading verse 26 in your copy of God's word and the spirit of God is convicting you because you know that in your life as a prolonged, consistent habit of your life, you call yourself religious, but yet you don't bridle your tongue. Hear it from the Lord. Your religion is worthless. May it be that if needed, you would come to Christ. Trust in him, rely upon him, beg him for that heart cleansing and that heart purifying work, and he will do it. He will do it. So James is telling us about true and undefiled religion. What is the first mark of true and undefiled religion? Number one, control your tongue. Number two, another way in which we know true and undefiled religion is to care for the weak. To care for the weak. And we see this in verse 27. You see it here in your Bible. Pure and undefiled religion, the sight of our God and Father, is this to visit orphans and widows in their distress. Why? Why does he mention this? Because when James wrote, there was no life insurance. A husband or a father would leave to a widow or to his children. There was no government-run programs to provide for them. There wasn't that permitted. It wasn't possible for them. 
So James is saying to the early believers, you need to know, verse 27, what pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father includes. Yes, it's controlling your tongue, but it's also caring for the weak. Now, do you see in your Bible, verse 27, the word visit? The word visit. The idea of visiting has the idea of looking carefully. Looking carefully with the goal, don't miss this, of serving a need. It's not just, well, I'm going to go and drop off something, or I'm going to go and visit them, I'm going to go and knock on the door, I'm going to call them. And that's important, and that's good, and that's profitable, and certainly to be commended. But the idea of visiting orphans and widows is the idea of looking carefully after someone with the goal of serving them or meeting a need that they might have. And James brings out two particular groups of people, the orphans and the widows who are in distress. What a tender God. What a good God. Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Way back in the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 22, verse 22, God said, You shall not afflict any orphan or any widow. Later on in the law, Deuteronomy 10, verse 18, God executes justice for the orphan and the widow. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 17, a mark of true repentance was that they would defend the orphan and they would plead the cause of the widow. One of the problems of ancient Israel was they had wicked rulers. Maybe we can relate to that. They had wicked rulers who chased after monetary rewards, but they did not defend the weak and the vulnerable. We can certainly relate to that. Isaiah 123 makes that clear back then as well. And what does God want of his people? God wants his people to care for the widows, to care for the orphans. In Jeremiah 22, in Zechariah 7, in Malachi chapter 3, all through the Old Testament, care for the weak. Why? 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 To visit orphans and widows. Why? Why these two groups? Why are they often mentioned together in the Bible? They're mentioned together in the Bible because these are some of the most weak, vulnerable, and defenseless of people. And what is so remarkable about the Pharisees, even though they looked religious on the outside, is they devoured widows' houses, according to Matthew chapter 23, verse 14. They devoured widows' houses. They would would steal. They would embezzle money from widows. Those who are weak, those who are vulnerable, those who are needy, those who are dependent. And that, that begs the question for you and for me. Well, who are the weak? Who are the needy? Who are those among us who are the most vulnerable? Well, we could probably give many answers. Certainly widows, certainly orphans, women, children, unborn children, and born children. And what I want you to see is that one of the marks of true and undefiled religion 
is a love for others. It's a sacrificial love for others. And not just others that might reciprocate something and pay you back, but those that are weak and those that are defenseless and those that might not be able to pay you back, those that are vulnerable, those that are susceptible to being taken advantage of. Take your Bible and go back to Matthew chapter 25. I want to read for you a couple of verses from Matthew chapter 25 And you know this, it's the section of the sheep and the goats judgment. When Jesus in his teaching here comes in his glory and all of the angels coming with him, and he talks about how all the nations will be gathered before him on that great day and he'll separate them from one another like a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Well, look at Matthew 25 verse 34. The king will say to those on his right, Come, come, you who are blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now, notice how they're described. Verse 35. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And And the righteous, in verse 37, will say to Jesus, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison or come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Do you see that there? Just a very simple way in which Jesus describes some of the characteristics of those who are his sheep in caring for even the least, caring for those who are the vulnerable. What are the marks of true religion? What what, what does Pastor James want the early believers to know? Well, it's vital. It's vital that you control the tongue. It's vital that we care for the weak. Can I just ask, what about you and in your life? Where can you grow in this area of caring for the weak? 1 John chapter 3 says this, We know love by this, that Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. Maybe a good conversation that you can have with your family or your spouse or your children tonight at dinner or tonight as you're driving home is to ask that question. So one of the marks of true religion is to care for the weak. How can we grow? Where can we grow in this? Are there those among our number, which there are, the the, the widows, those who are the defenseless, Women, children, young children, the unborn children, where can we visit them with a goal to serving, helping, coming alongside of them in Christian love? That might be a great conversation to have even tonight on the way home. So Pastor James wants to tell us true and undefiled religion. Number one, controlling your tongue. 
Number two, caring for the weak. And now number three. There's one more mark, and it's kind of tucked at the very end of chapter 1, verse 27. You must contend for purity. And I put the word contend intentionally because it really is a fight. We have to fight for purity. This is holiness. We are are going against the grain of the world. We are swimming against the current of culture. What is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father? To visit orphans and widows in their distress. And then verse 27, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. This, church family, is a simple call to Christian holiness. It is a simple call to Christian holiness. If you take your Bible and just maybe turn a page or two to James 4 and verse 4, look at this. Look at how James writes about this there. He says, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Very clear. A little later on in 1 John chapter 2. The Apostle John says in verse 15, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And the world is passing away, and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. You know the man, Leonard Ravenhill. You've heard me quote him many, many times. Leonard Ravenhill has such a great quote on this. He said, one of the greatest miracles that God does is to take an unholy man out of an unholy world, and then God makes that man a holy man. And he puts that holy man back into the unholy world, and he keeps him holy in it. Isn't that a great quote? The great miracle of God. It's the beauty of regeneration and Christian living. God takes an unholy man and makes him holy. And then he puts that holy man back in the unholy world and he keeps him holy while he's in it. That's what verse 27 is all about of James chapter 1. The true religion is to keep yourself unstained by the world. Notice the active verb. You have to keep yourself. Do you see it there? There's no passive here. There's no, you have to wait for God to do this to you. No, you, you need to keep yourself. It is intentional, zealous effort. What's the world? What's the world? It's the ungodly, the spiritual system of philosophy and morals and values of this satanic, earthly, God-rejecting culture. It is the ungodly, spiritual system of philosophy and morals and values of our satanic, earthly, God-rejecting culture. The original Greek, it could not be more clear. You need to keep yourself unstained, completely separated from the world. 
You're living in the world. You can't, you can't separate from the world unless you leave the planet. We know that physically. But yet spiritually, as we live for Christ, we need to abstain from the worldly desires and lusts and pleasures. And if we doubt this, we could only ask Lot's wife. In Genesis chapter 19, verse 26, she may have left Sodom, but Sodom was not out of her heart. She was turned into a pillar of salt. Demas, according to 2 Timothy 4, verse 10, he was a, he was a missionary laborer with the Apostle Paul, and yet he loved the present world, and he abandoned the Apostle Paul. Or the nation of Israel, the kings of Israel, the, the people of Israel, 2 Kings 17, God brought judgment upon them because they became like all the other nations. It's so tragic that in contemporary evangelicalism, one of the fastest growing trends among churches is that churches need to be like the world in order to reach the world. And that is the greatest lie from the devil. You don't reach the world by being like the world. You reach the world by calling the world to repent and showing them a distinct and a God-like and Christ-like life. That's what God wants. What does God want? He wants you to keep yourself unstained from the world. And the word unstained means irreproachable. It means untouched. It means pure. It's, it's like the priests in the Old Testament when they, when they had a crown that had inscribed holy to the Lord. They were, they were men of God marked out for a special calling. Well, in a similar way, you and I ought to have holy to the Lord inscribed on us. We are distinct, and we are holy to the Lord. And and church family, you get this. I don't need to comment so much on it. The world is all around us and even so often can seep into our hearts. We have our smartphones. We imbibe news and headlines. You go to clothing stores and malls. You see the New York Times bestsellers. You're influenced and swayed by the world more than we probably realize. We hear people talking around us at the gym, at the coffee shop, at work, even at church. We watch TV, the commercials, and all the greed and coveting and lust and gossip and discontentment that it fuels. We just have our eyes open. I mean, just walking in the world in which we live. We are imbibing this world. We can't leave planet Earth. We can't. But how do we live unstained from the world? How do we do this? Let me give you five simple words, just by way of help, and then we'll draw this to a close. Five simple words. You say, Jeff, I get this here. I want to keep myself unstained from the world, but my work environment is toxic. People that I, that I, that I interact with on a daily basis are God-haters. They don't love Christ. They don't worship Christ. And my life is just in the world 24-7. Help me. How do I keep myself unstained from the world? Number one, got to remember your identity 
your identity. Why? Because if you're a Christian, that means you're called out from the world. That's who you are. You're an alien in this world. So you feel uncomfortable here? Well, that's, that's good. That's your identity. This is not your home. You are called out from the world, but get this, you're called to holiness. We're called out from the world and we're called unto holiness. So how do we keep ourselves unstained? Remember your identity. Second, remember the heart, the heart. We have to emphasize Bible intake to guard and to shield you from the many, many seductive lusts of this world. The word of God is our protection and it will shield our heart. It will guard our heart. It will put a buffer around our heart to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. Third, Christian, remember this. If you want to keep yourself unstained from the world, Guard your mouth. Number three, your mouth. Well, how do I do that? Speak of him whom you love. Speak of him whom you love. Your coworkers do it, don't they? I mean, your boss does it. Media does it. They talk about what they love, and so much of it is ungodly. You speak about, Christian, what you love. Speak of the one whom you love. Speak of Christ. Speak of what you did on the weekend and how God encouraged your heart from a teaching on the word of God. Speak of the joy of gathering with God's people and the, and the joy and the blessedness of rest for your soul. Speak of him. Fourth, Christian, you want to keep your, your life unstained from the world. Fourth, remember your ambition. Your ambition. What is your ambition? It's not to be like the world, to please the world. No, no, no. Your ambition, 2 Corinthians 5, 9, we make it our ambition to be pleasing to God. I just want, I want to please God. So as you're going to work tomorrow morning, as you're living your life, as you're parenting your children, as you're teaching your kids, as you're disciplining your kids, as you're interacting with your spouse, as you're engaging in discipleship relationships, I want to please the Lord today. All that I do, I want to be pleasing to God. Let that be your ambition. How do you keep yourself unstained from the world? Number five, remember your family. Your family, by that, prioritizing God's people. If you're with the world six days during the week, we need, we need this blessed haven. We need this wonderful time together with the people of God to serve, to edify, to love, to get together, to enjoy a meal, to encourage, to to speak a word of encouragement. We need these times. Why? Because it reminds us that heaven is soon coming, where this will be a forever abode of perfect mutual encouragement with the people of God forever. What is James doing? In James chapter 1, he is writing to the early Christians, and he wants them to know what true and undefiled religion is. And it's almost like we have to say, examine yourself. How do you measure up to this? We say that we're religious. We say that we have faith, but is it a working faith? Is it a demonstrating faith? Do you control your tongue? 
Do you care for the weak? Do you, third, fight and contend for purity? And if you say, by the grace of God, that's true of me, and may I excel still more, then Christian, charge on and keep doing it. But if you're honest with yourself and you think, these are not true of me, my life is not marked by these things, then friend, I call you, I call you to come to Christ. And I call you now to come to Christ before you meet him on that last day. And you say, Lord, look at all the great things I've done for you. And then he might say those dreadful words, depart from me, I never knew you, you who work lawlessness. Now, before we close, I want to give you two motives. So why should we live out this true and undefiled religion? I mean, this is hard. This is convicting. It cuts deep to our hearts. Why should we do this? Number one, because of Jesus. Because of Jesus. Because of Jesus. He is the truth. The undefiled. The unblemished one. Child of God, he gave all for you. He gave all for you. He bled for you. He died for you. He atoned for you. He redeemed you. He gave his life in purchasing your soul. He gave all for you. And now he calls you to give all for him. A second reason, a second motive why we should live out this true and undefiled religion is it is a great incentive for us to long for heaven. To long for heaven. Can you imagine a world of pure hearts? Can you imagine a world of perfect speech? Can you imagine a world with perfect love for all people? Can you imagine a world where there is no worldliness, but all Christ-likeness? It's all beautiful. It's all glorious. It's all delightful. It's all God-like. Can you imagine that kind of a world? And for a Christian, we, we want that. We, we long for that. We, we yearn for that. And as we read about what true and undefiled religion is, it ought to, in part, cause us to yearn for that day. To long for heaven when there is a world where there is perfect speech, perfect love, and perfect godliness. To draw this to a close, my mentor in the faith, Joseph Aileen, who's long been dead, he lived in the 1600s, but he mentors me through his writings. I have a book that he wrote. It was, it was many of the chapters that he wrote, but actually his wife compiled it and then wrote a biography about her husband's life. Her, his wife's name was Theodosia, and she wrote about his life and his ministry and his pastoral ministry, his imprisonments. He was imprisoned twice, and then his death at the age of 34 in the city of Taunton in England. But at the end of this book, one of the things that I do, it's not every day, but it's most days, is at the end of this book, there's a collection of letters that he wrote, Joseph Aileen, to his church when he was in jail. And and I take them and I read them, not so much as a pastor to his church, but as an older mentor written to me, a younger mentor, and I kind of personalize it. Well, this week, as I was reading one of his letters, letter number 28, 
It is a warning letter against mere profession of faith in Christ. It's very timely. He said, be warned, my dear beloved, that you fall not upon the dangerous rocks upon which so many professors have been split. You must beware of three things. A real short little letter, and he says, you need to beware of three things. And I'm going to read them to you, and I think they serve as a fitting conclusion to this sermon. Joseph Aileen said, Beware, lest Christ be in your mouth, but the world runs away with your heart. What a great piece of advice. Beware, lest Christ be in your mouth, but the world runs away with your heart. He said, Guard, guard, my beloved, against the overvaluing of earthly things. What a good lesson. A second, a second warning that Joseph Aileen gives. Beware, lest your sin increases, your love for Christ will then grow cold. What a simple lesson. We've all been there. We understand that. He said, guard against lest your sin increases, but your love for Jesus will grow cold. Like the church of Laodicea, they were lukewarm. And Jesus said, if if you don't choose me, I will spit you out of my mouth. And then a third warning from Joseph Aileen. Beware, he said, beware lest you maintain a fruitless profession of faith without progression of ongoing holiness of heart and life. And here's what Aileen said. He said, be careful that you're not only lip professors, but you want to be life practicers. And I appreciate that. That's good. It's easy to be a lip professor. Everybody says, I know God. I'm spiritual. I've got this. And then be careful that you're not only a lip professor, but a life practicer. And then at the end of that letter, you know what Aileen said? He said, my brethren, I wish and pray for the prosperity of you all. But above all, I wish your soul's prosperity. I commend you to the living God as I remain your fervent well-wisher and ambassador in Christ. Joseph Aileen, written from prison, June 16, 66. Christian, what a good lesson. Not only 400 years ago, but even for those of us right now. And not only for James's original audience 2,000 years ago, but for us today. True and undefiled religion. Control your tongue. Care for the weak. And contend for purity. May the Lord help us to grow in these areas. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who not only gives us the truth in the word of God regarding how we are to live and how we can live as those whose hearts have been born again by the word of truth, by the spirit of God. But, oh, Lord, we we ask for your forgiveness where we have sinned, where we have failed, We come before you, O Lord, acknowledging where we have sinned, acknowledging where we have not controlled our tongues, where we have sinned by allowing the world to influence our hearts and our lives. 
not caring for one another. Oh, Father, would you please, by your mercy and by the enabling, sovereign power of the Holy Spirit who lives within us, would you help us? Would you help us to grow in these three indicators of true and undefiled religion for the glory of our great Savior? And God, we want to be holy, but we know that you, will also do that work in us to make us holy, and you will sanctify us to make us more like Christ. And we thank you for that promise and that great hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.